Hello and welcome to the River's Edge Church Podcast. Today, Pastor Dave Johnson will bring a message of hope through our series in 1 Corinthians, Christ Culture Church. We're excited to share another episode with you today. And now, here's Pastor Dave. All right, good morning. It was good to be with you. Of course, we've been in a series on the book of 1 Corinthians for a few weeks now. Um, I, here's what I want to say to you today. If, if maybe you're here and you enjoy having your kids in church with you today, uh, one of the things, just as a quick disclaimer, is that the church in Corinth gets a little bit spicy. It just does. It's not, Paul wrote it, not me. Um, and so we're going to be covering some of these things today, some worldly issues that they deal with. And if you'd rather your kids not hear that, then we would encourage you to go to the children's department and, and have them participate in church there. If not, and you're cool with explaining stuff to your kids, that's great too. Normally, I would jump right in and, uh, and I would tell you a story or something like that. But here's the deal. In order to understand the scripture that we're going to read today, I've got to tell you about four threads from the Old Testament, and then when we read the scripture, you'll go, oh, these all fit in together. So we're just going to jump right into these threads today, all right? Are you all with me? You ready to do this? Okay, good. The first thread, Exodus chapter 12. If, you, if you've got a Bible and you'd rather flip there, go ahead. It's Exodus 12. If not, it'll be up on the screens. We spent a lot of time over the summer in Exodus And so Exodus chapter 12 is this right here. On that same night, this is verse 12. I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. This is what God is saying to Moses, and and he's basically saying there's going to be these plagues that, that will come, and the last plague, all these other plagues did not affect you, but the last plague is going to affect Israel. And what I need you to do, and we're going to go through this a little bit, is I need you to understand that this plague is so that everyone knows that I am more powerful than the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. And so these plagues are going to result in Pharaoh's hearts being changed, and it's going to result in a complete exodus, right? The 10th plague was this different plague, like I said. The Hebrews are affected as well, and there's a very important reason for that. So if we keep reading, starting again in verse 12, on that same night I will pass through Egypt, I will strike down every firstborn of people and animals, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Passover is where God spares his people. There is this sacrifice involved in Passover, Because they made this sacrifice and they put the blood on their door, God passed over them. That would be a substitutionary sacrifice. Later, much longer, years later, Jesus would have his blood on the doorpost of the universe, right? And this is setting all that up. The Passover is extremely important. And God says, commemorate this day. And it's verses 14 through 17. I told you, we're just jumping right in today. This is a day you were to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. And on that first day, remove all the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day to the seventh month must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly 
and another one on the seventh day. Do not work on any of these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is what you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. And maybe you're new to church and you're like, okay, what, what does this mean? Here's, here's what this is doing. What they told the Israelites to do, what God told the Israelites to do is make bread without any yeast in it. Yeast is not right or wrong in itself. It is a symbol. Yeast is simply a symbol. As just a little bit of that permeates the entire batch of dough. Yeast is a symbol of sin. Jesus will use it as a symbol of sin. And the idea is this feast of Passover, you're supposed to go all through your house and throw all the yeast out the window. Make sure that none of it is left in your house. So when you bake the, this bread, it'll, it'll be flat and it won't have any yeast in it. And it won't taste as good. I don't know why God is against good tasting bread. <laughs> um... <laughs> But he's saying that, first of all, it's a faster baking process. I want you to be able to get up and be ready to go whenever I call you out. Secondly, you need to leave your sin in Egypt. As you go into, I'm, I'm creating you to be a brand new people, and you need to leave your sin behind. That was the symbol. The symbol was that you take all the yeast, you throw it out, and, and for years to come, they're doing this every single year. And the kids are saying to their parents, why are we throwing out all the yeast? They're like, well, it's a symbol because you've got to leave your sin behind. If you, God's going to make you into a new person, you've got to leave it behind. God's got something new for you. So the first thread and what we're eventually going to get to in 1 Corinthians 5 today is the Passover. This is, by the way, I'm giving you all, almost all your notes up front, four of the five points right up front. The Passover was about removing all sin and leaving it behind in Egypt. Now, there's a thousand other things the Passover does, and it's, it's just an incredible feast and example and all that stuff, but that's what it was. It's about removing all the sin and leaving it behind in Egypt. Okay, thread one. Thread two. We're just going to just, you don't have to turn to these verses because I'm going to go through them quick. Thread two is you must purge the evil from among you. So we don't talk about this in church that often, but Paul's going to talk about this, so I'm going to bring it up. Deuteronomy 13, 5. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That prophet or dreamer tried to turn you from the way of the Lord and commanded you, that the way the Lord commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. Deuteronomy 19, 19. Then do, do to the false witnesses as that witnesses intend to do to you or the other party. You must purge the evil from among you. Deuteronomy 21, 18. Parents, listen up. This one's about disobeying parents. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders of the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All of Israel will hear about it and be afraid. Side note. Jesus tells a parable about two sons. Everyone was expecting him to bring this verse up. And he changes the end of the story. Jesus' death and resurrection changes the ends of our story. 
carrying on. There's so much to say about these, but we're just going to breeze right through them because I just want you to see this permeated the Old Testament. If a man happens to meet in a town, a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone him to death. The young woman, because she was in a town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife. You must purge the evil from among you. Ouch. Now, obviously, this is about a couple being complicit in a sexual relationship outside of the engagement and betrothal process and all that stuff. But again, God is, get, God is serious about this. This is why I'm reading all of these verses. I want you to get God is serious about this in the Old Testament. You, you threw the yeast away at Passover. Now keep it away as the point. If someone is caught kidnapping a fellow Israelite and treating or selling them as a slave, the kidnapper must die. You must purge the evil from among you. Ow. The idea of purging evil is just like the idea of running around and taking the yeast out of your house and throwing it out the window. That's what the idea of purging evil from among you means. The idea is you got to get rid of it before it begins to corrupt everything else. Because you know when you have some people that are corrosive in relationships, they begin to corrupt everything else. Like you've experienced this before, and this is what God is saying. I want a holy people. I want a pure people. I want a people whose hearts are devoted to me. And if you have these people who are doing all these things, then eventually you're going to have to be faced with a choice. Do we give them a pass or do we purge the evil from among us? And if we give them a pass, then the whole community gets changed by that. So what God's saying is when you give a pass to sin in the community, then what you're really doing is you're giving permission to the entire community to live in sin. Therefore, you must purge the evil from among you. This is a, a fill in the blank, by the way, point number two. Th- two threads. Okay. So we got the first thread, right? The first thread <laughs> is what the Passover is. The second thread is purge the evil. Third, third thread, and this is where it starts to get a little bit spicy, but again, I want you to see it's talked about in the Old Testament, and that is don't sleep with your stepmom. If any of you are here and you needed to hear that, I'm sorry. I don't know why. Hopefully this is an obvious point. Hopefully all of you didn't have to write that down as a note. Like, okay, check, Pastor Dave. I'm good. Deuteronomy 22, verse 30. A man is not to marry his father's wife. He must not dishonor his father's bed. Deuteronomy 27, 20. Cursed is anyone who sleeps with his father's wife, for he dishonors his father's bed. Then all the people shall say amen. All right. <laughs> it's in the Bible, right? Now, what, here's what you have to understand about this, because this is the Bronze Age, when this is written, it's so far removed from our 21st century world that I want to help you understand. And even this was happening in the first century. And, and that was having children. We live in a world where we're like, okay, two kids, birth control, all that stuff, we're done. Three kids, we're done. In their world, it was like, ah. Oh, I've only had four kids and my wife died. I better marry somebody much younger than me so we could have four or five more kids. So we could extend the family even more. Like they, they wanted to have more kids. So it was not uncommon at all for men who were older to marry somebody who might have been the age of their teenage son. And oftentimes the teenage son and the new wife kind of got the hots for each other. I know. 
yes, this was a real problem. And they had so much so that they had to talk about it in the Bible. And you're like, either, either you're like, I'm so glad I came to church today, or why did I come to church today? One of the two. I have no idea. But the point, the point is that this was biblical law. Don't sleep with your stepmom. Don't break your marriage covenant. Your marriage covenant is sacred. And, and, and don't break yours or someone else's. So the thread three, sexual immorality is sinful and damaging to the marriage relationship. We're going to talk about that today because Paul talks about that today. All right, fourth thread. And then I, I, I promise you, after we get to these threads, we'll actually get to 1 Corinthians here. One of the toughest parts about reading scripture as 21st century Americans is it's hard to read past our individuality. Americans are so individualistic. We just are. It's, it's part of our DNA. It's part of being American is that you're an individual, you're individualistic. But uh, what I really want to stress to you is this is so modern. Like this way of thinking is so new in our world that it's, it's just crazy. We've got this individualism, and I'm just going to give you the, the Twitter version of the history. It started in the late 1700s when Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Rousseau began writing and he wrote about the inner life of man and man's feelings. He wrote, he wrote about finding identity in feelings and truth in feelings. Um, one of the things he wrote, and this is a direct quote from his book, Confessions, the particular object in my confession is to make known my inner self. All I need to do, as I've done up till now, is to look inside myself. Now, for some of you, you're, there's nothing revolutionary about that sentence whatsoever. He's just saying like, hey... I just want to know, I, the reason why I'm writing is to look deeper within. And some of you are like, oh, yeah, good. He's like gone to therapy. He knows how to do this, right? He's like looking deep within himself. This is a good thing, right? And all I need to do it really is look inside myself. And again, I, I mean, his confessions are like super thick. So what he's trying to say, though, is that truth can be found in the inner self, and identity can be found in the inner self. And this gave rise to a whole bunch of good things and a whole bunch of difficult things for us in society. First and foremost, truth cannot be found by looking into yourself. I'm sorry to tell you, but you are not the truth. You're not. The truth is a person, his name is Jesus. So when you look deeply inside yourself, you should look at and see like this gaping hole of somebody who needs the truth, who needs Jesus. When you look deeply inside yourself, you should see somebody who needs redeeming, right? So looking inside yourself and seeing your feelings as total truth, it has done a lot of damage into our world today because, of course, we're, we're, we're broken people, Right? And we need Jesus. So individualism was born, really, um, by looking at the man inside. That's what individualism was born from, and a few other things. And so why does this even matter today? Because individualism is new. And in Paul's day, there was something called an honor-shame society. This still exists and I would say in Asian parts of our world, there's still like an honor-shame part of the culture. And, and in, that, in these cultures, it's more communal. It's not about the individual identity. It's about the community's identity. And in Paul's day, this is what it was all about, the identity of the entire community. There was nothing hidden from your community. 
Your community mattered. And it was a shameful thing to do to act in such a way to bring shame to your community. This is the honor-shame society. The biggest wrong that you could ever do in your community is to dishonor your community. And the best thing you could do is to bring honor to your community. So all this to say, there's this idea in the Old Testament of the entirety of Israel being held responsible when just one person sins. And you're thinking, that's not fair. I'm my own person. That's your American individualism coming out. It just absolutely is. The Bible doesn't think that way. It just doesn't. And so you're thinking, well, no, I mean, this one guy sinned, just punish him. But what about all the people who watched him sin? What about all the people who just kind of turned a blind eye? They saw it happening, but they were like, ah, if I don't see it, I don't have to deal with it. What about those people? And this is what Paul's going to address too. So Joshua 7, 1, and I know it doesn't sound fair, but here it is. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Camari, son of Zumri, and the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of them, the sacred things, by the way, of the uh, Palestinian, or, uh, ah, mixing up my words here. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So what's happening here? One guy took things, pagan things that were gold and idols and statues, and he said, ooh, this is good. This is going to be worth some money. And he took these things, and God's command in the conquest of Canaan was to destroy all that stuff because it was idolatrous. But what he did instead is he took it, and he hid it, and he said, this is mine. And the reality of what happened here is that all of Israel was held accountable for this one man's sin. And again, your 21st century individualism is like, oh, that's wrong, that's wrong. But what's happening here is enough people knew and did nothing. People knew and didn't stop them. So thread four, there's both an individual and a corporate responsibility for sin in the church. And Paul is going to talk about these four things. And instead of reading you the verse first and then trying to go back and talk about them, I thought I would talk about these four things first and now get into the verse. So again, the four threads, Passover and unleavened bread, remove the sin from your house, leave the sin behind. That's what Passover is about. Purge the evil. Don't let this evil to, to, to exist inside your community because it's going to come in and change the whole community. Don't do it. Red three, don't sleep with your stepmom. <laughs> I feel like we're all good on that one. Okay. Thread four, corporate responsibility of sin. That God holds communities responsible for sin at times. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. We're going to go through this a little bit slower. So if you've got your Bible, I want to encourage you to go through this. As Paul doesn't just talk to this community now, but lays into this community. This is always fun. We're, you have to keep in mind too, by the way, that these would have been read, this letter would have been read publicly to the church, probably multiple times in multiple locations. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud 
Shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and put out of the fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Bet there's no questions there. We're all good with that one? Just move on? I'm joking. These verses are so explosive that, like I said, I didn't just want to read it to you without breaking it down first. That's what the four threads are about. And do you see them? Don't sleep with your, step, your stepmom. There's sexual, sexual immorality reported among you, and even the pagans don't tolerate it. The Greek word for sexual immorality is pornea. Do you know what modern word we use today? Pornography. It's the same word. Sexual morality, pornea, and pornography is the same exact word. So you go back to thread three. Sexual immorality is a sin. Pornea is a sin. Pornea, is, like I said, is where we get the modern word pornography. And I've heard men make cases before that pornography is not a sin because it's all mental and not physical. And I've got to be the one that says to them, and I like to use shock therapy sometimes when I talk to people, um, and I said, oh, so you're the one guy who doesn't masturbate while you watch porn. I don't know, pin drop in here, woo! (laughs) I'm like, you're fooling yourself if you think it's not physical. That's my point. Men, if you're involved with pornography, that is adultery. is called sexual immorality. It's adultery. It permeates its way just like yeast works into dough. It permeates its way into every part of your marriage and eventually will corrupt it. And women sometimes, I mean, it's not always a man's sin. Sometimes it's women's sin too. But sometimes you know and say, well, it's just easier if he does that. No, you can't tolerate that in your marriage. Ultimately, your, your sex life, ultimately, your life will decline in marriage. And Paul says this is a sexual immorality among you that even the pagans don't tolerate. A man has his father's wife. Again, this is the case where, you know, a, a guy probably married a younger woman after his wife died, and he's got a teenage son, and they're, him and his stepmom have made eyes at each other and, and all that stuff. About 10 years before Paul ever wrote this, there was a Roman emperor named Caligula. The Roman emperor Caligula was so desperate to have an heir, and he believed in this whole bloodline Roman deal, and he liked what the Egyptians did. So he had three sisters, and he began to take his sisters as kind of like wives to help him bear a child so that they could be the new heir to the throne. And this was a massive scandal to the Roman sensibilities. I mean, we think of Romans and their sexual ethic as being loose because we look at the Corinthian church and all that stuff, but this, there was no tolerance for incest. And this is what was happening in the church. I think Paul was like, how do you expect to have an influence in this world if this world looks at you and thinks that you're disgusting? How do, you, how do you expect to have an influence in this world if the Roman, entire Roman world looks at you and goes, I would never be a part of that community. Your, your standards are lower than the world. How, come on, church. This is what Paul's saying to them. And there's this man who's sleeping with his father's wife. 
So then Paul says, and you're proud. And you're proud about this. Shouldn't you have gone into mourning? And then he says, shouldn't you have put this guy out of your fellowship? Church, you've had the wrong reaction to sin. Remember that last one, like there's a corporate responsibility for sin that we talked about? This one guy stole all this stuff, and then everybody kind of turned a blind eye to it, but the whole community was responsible? Well, the community in this church knows. This is not a world of individualism. This is a world where everybody's up in each other's business, and they know. And the church is just like, well, we're, we're just proud of this guy. No. Time to put this guy out of your fellowship. Paul says, I'm not even there with you, but since I planted this church, I'm with you in spirit. And then he says this, and this is the part where, uh, that, that gets shocking in 1 Corinthians 5. Cast this man out to Satan. What? Like, isn't that the opposite of what we're supposed to do? Aren't we supposed to lead people to Jesus? What is this verse about? Well, let me break down what this verse is because I, it, really what it is is shock therapy. You have to understand that in Paul's mind, in his worldview, Paul is a, a deeply Jewish man first, and Israel is where, where Yahweh dwells. That's Yahweh's territory. That's the Lord's territory. And now, since the death, resurrection, and giving of the Spirit from Jesus, where God dwells is now with the church. So the church is holy ground. So to Paul, everywhere where the church is, this is holy ground. This is why Paul wants so desperately to expand the church because every time you're expanding the church, you're in this spiritual battle, defeating Satan, defeating hell, defeating evil. You are expanding God's kingdom. So what he's saying is everything outside of the church is kind of like Satan's domain. So he's not like meaning go give him over to this, you know, horns, pitchfork, tail character. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, go just cast this man out of the presence because he's that little bit of yeast that's worked its way into the church that is changing the spiritual makeup of this church. And you're all tolerating it. You're all cool with it. Why? Cast this guy out. And then, but Paul says, cast him out so that he might be saved. And I want to talk about this for a second. I'd been, uh, before I was a senior pastor, I was a youth pastor for eight years, and I had to have some very difficult conversations with parents about kids who just completely, like, were ruining everything in the house. And we've had some rough kids, and we had a parent make the very difficult and awful decision to kick their kid out of the house. It was horrible and awful, and I hate even thinking about it today. It was awful. I hated even being anywhere like 10,000 miles. I want to be 10,000 miles away from that decision. I, I couldn't even believe they involved me in it. I was like, oh, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. But the reality is that that kid came to their senses and came back. That kid came to their senses and said, I'm sorry. I didn't realize what I was doing. I'm sorry. I acted this way. And, and I was like shocked. I mean, we prayed about this and we were, I was like, oh my gosh, Lord, is this really what you want? I'm freaking out about it. But the parents were like, no, you're gonna, your brother and your sister, you're, you're ruining them. And we can't have this in our house. And there were some obvious destructive things. But I've seen it where it, it's almost like, the, the, remember that old A&E TV show, Intervention? Remember that show? It's almost like this massive intervention. It's like, because we love you, we can't 
let you keep doing this. Because we love you, this is going to be tough, and we need to rip you out of this situation, and it's going to hurt, but we're doing it because we love you. This is what Paul's advocating for the church. It's tough and it's difficult. Let's keep going. Verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast, oh, there's the yeast thing again, leavens the whole batch of dough? Don't get rid of, get rid of the old yeast for, so that you may be made new. I'm sorry. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You go back to thread one. Paul is saying, remember the Passover we got to get rid of the old yeast. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He, he invites us to a new life. He died for your sin once and for all. Don't go back to it. Once you find Jesus and are redeemed by him, don't go back to the old yeast. This is what Paul's talking about. The whole point of Israel is to leave the yeast in Israel. This is common if you've had some sort of freedom from sin and then you fall back into that behavior, don't let it back in because it's going to corrupt the whole batch. And you, you got to see what happens next because it's something that I think that we get very, very backwards in the church today. Here's what happens next. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Hyphen not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you have to leave the world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, or slanderer, or drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. This is how serious Paul is. And then he says this, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. He ends it with expel the wicked person from among you. See, what Paul is saying here is something that we get backwards today. Oftentimes, I feel like the church is known for judging the outside world. That's what we're known for. That's what we do best, right? We're really good at it. We know what's right and what's wrong out there. And Paul is saying, quit looking out there and look in here. Quit looking at, at, at what everyone else is doing wrong in, in, unless you got it all right. It's almost like what Jesus said, stop looking at the speck in somebody else's eye and remove the log in your own. He's saying, look internally. He's saying, I, the, no one has called you to judge the outside world. Do not judge the secular world. Ju- you're allowed to judge internally, to judge the church. Because guess what? We all live by the same set of standards. If you've said yes to Jesus, then this is a set of standards you live by. And what Paul is saying is, they don't live by these standards. How can you judge them? They don't live by these. You can't judge them. You've got no basis. Until they come into the community of of Christ and they they lay their old life down and begin to live and are mentored and and, and are discipled into, into God's way of life, God's design, God's standard, then there's no basis for judging the outside world. So maybe some of you just needed that freedom today. You're like, wow, I don't need to yell at the TV anymore. Amen. You know? 
If anything, we should have compassion on the outside world because they are missing this eternal way of life that God has given to us. Go after them and tell them about Jesus. But you have to handle the sin that's within the church. This is what Paul's saying. Because the church is supposed to be a witness to the world. The church is God's community, God, the hope of God in a broken world. This is what the church is. The church is a light in a dark place. The church shows radically different lives in the church and holds each other accountable to the scriptures. This is what the church does. And, and, and lastly, your very last fill-in is this. Paul doesn't call us to judge the world, but to accountability within the church. And this is a good thing. Again, it's what our modern individualism just hates, accountability. I want to do things my way. I want to do it the way I want. I want to do life like I've got truth within me, so I'm going to live by that truth. Like, no, we're all held to this book. Guess what? At the end of the day, when it's all is said and done and we are judged by God, he's not going to judge you by your standards the truth that you found within you. He's going to judge you by these standards. And Jesus is going to say, tell you what, this is what death on the cross does for us. Jesus says, you've written a book in your life with the, all these things happening, and I've written a book. I'll tell you what, you could either be judged by your actions, your deeds in your life, or you could be judged by mine. That's what the blood of Jesus does. Which one do you want to be judged by? I choose Jesus' book all day. My book is not good enough. I choose his all day. So maybe your response today is found in one of these four threads. I want to invite the band to come up, and we're going to respond to the song. The first one is the Passover is about removing all sin and leaving it behind. Maybe you're here today, and there's sin that you know about. Like, as I was talking, God's been dealing with you, and you need to leave it behind. I want to encourage you right now. It's about leaving that sin behind and saying, I can no longer bring this into the community of Christ. I can no longer bring this into my marriage. I can no longer bring this into relationships. I can no longer bring this into my life. Thread two is just like it. Purge the evil from among you. You know what this means. Maybe there's evil in your life and you you need to throw it away. You need to make a decision between you and God right now that evil will no longer have that place in your life. This is the time for you. Thread three, sexual immorality. It's sinful and damaging to the marriage relationship. Maybe there's pornea in your life. And whatever instance that is. You know what it is, whether it's either your thought life, whether it's on your phone, whether it is just conversations with coworkers that you should not be having. You know what that is, and you know how damaging it is. I want to encourage you to be free from it by fleeing from it. That's the only way. You have to flee from it. If you're tangled up in it, I know it seems so deep, and the only way is to confess it and and confess it, and it'll be painful, but it's the only route to healing. It's the only route to true healing. So I want to encourage you. Maybe right now God's dealing with, with you in that. And then thread four, there's both an individual and a corporate responsibility for sin in the church. This chapter of 1 Corinthians is about sin absolutely devastating the community of God. 
And Paul is not looking to the broader culture in Corinth and saying, look, it's the prostitutes, look, it's the pagan worship. He's saying, it starts with you. It starts with the church. You're the set-apart ones. You're the ones called to be holy. You are the ones who are supposed to be the light of the world. So maybe if you're here today and you realize there's both an individual and corporate responsibility for sin, like, man, I, it's something sinful. I need to do something about it. Whether it's in your own life or, or somebody else's in a, joy, in a loving way, you need to do something about it. I want to encourage you this next song, this next time, is time for you to respond. And then in a minute, we're going to take communion. And one of the things that Paul says is examine yourself and don't take it lightly. That's what we're doing right now, is taking this time to examine yourself and not take the communion meal lightly because it's about making a declaration that you are fleeing from sin and that you're leaving it behind, and that you will now live by the blood of the Lamb, not your own ideas, not your own inner truth, not your own whatever. Father, I pray right now that as you do work during this next song, that you would do an incredible work in the lives of your people, that your Holy Spirit would convict us of sin, that your Holy Spirit would lead us into new territory, God, that we might be made new in you right now. God, maybe there's some people here, even right now, even today, even this second, who would say, God, I want to be judged by your book and not mine. I want to be judged by what you did and not what I've done. God, forgive me. Make me new. In the name of Jesus. Oh, come to the altar, 
Now I want to encourage you to grab your elements. If you want to sit down for a moment, you can. I'm going to invite you to stand again. I'm going to read out of uh, Paul's, again, his letter to the Corinthian church. In chapter 10 of his letter to Corinth, he would say, listen, your meals, the things that you're doing, you're, you're going and uniting yourself with demons. Like he literally says that in your food, because there was a lot of food sacrificed to false gods. It's like you're going to unite yourself with them. Come around the Lord's table. Unite yourself to the Lord. And then he says this in chapter 11, starting in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. 
And he had given thanks, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you, which is in remembrance of me. This is unleavened bread, bread without yeast, symbolizing the perfection of Jesus Christ, that he was sinless and yet bore our sin on the cross. This is what this bread is symbolizing. It's a reminder to us that Jesus had everything that is distasteful, everything that is wrong in your life heaped on him on the cross so that you could be free. That's what this is. So as we take it and eat together, we remember our Lord's death. We remember him taking our own sin. So I encourage you, take and eat. Lord God, we thank you for your son who allowed, who you allowed to be heaped on him the sin of the world, including my own sin. Lord, we thank you that he took away the sin of the world, that took away the sin of the church, and for all who choose him, can be made new in him. We thank you for that, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. And then Paul says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What Paul is saying is that this cup is actually a proclamation of your own covenant with God. Because Jesus said, this is a new covenant for you. So as you take this, it's actually evangelistic in some sort of way. That you're saying, I'm a part of this covenant with God. And I'm going to make that known to the world. I'm going to make sure that other people know about this covenant and that they could have that too. Take and drink. Father, we thank you for shedding your blood, which purifies us from all sins and gives us access to you and the Father to stand faultless before the throne because you have declared us not guilty, O oh God. And we thank you for that. We thank you for giving of your body and your blood so that we might be free. In the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that God has touched your heart through today's message. Please leave us a review and share with your friends. For more information about the ministries of REC, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. See the links in the description.